Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. In this episode, I feature Rose Lee Goldberg, a world-renowned art historian, critic and curator, founding director and chief curator of Performa. Launched in 2004 to create a highly visible public platform for contemporary art and performance by artists, Performa has changed public and academic perception of performance art with its exciting citywide biennial, groundbreaking commissions, publications, and original arts broadcasting platform. Performa has inspired the establishment of performance departments and cultural institutions around the globe. Rose Lee's many publications include her pioneering book, Performance Art, The Futurism to the Present, first published in 1979 and now in 14 languages. Laurie Anderson in 2000, in Performance Now, Live Art for the 21st Century in 2018. Rose Lee was the former director of the Royal College of Art Gallery in London and curator at The Kitchen in New York. She organized performance series at the Museum of Modern Art, the Guggenheim, and Garage in Moscow. Her many awards include Chevalier of the Order of Arts and Letters from the French government, Yoko Ono's Courage Awards for the Arts, the Agnes Gunn Curatorial Award, and the title of Honorary Advisor to the Ministry of Culture in Taiwan. A graduate of the Courtauld Institute, Rose Lee has taught at NYU Steinhardt since 1987. Enjoy this episode featuring Rose Lee Goldberg. Rose Lee, thank you for being featured on my, my podcast. I'm, I'm delighted to share with everybody the wonderful work you've done over the years. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. When in your life did you recognize your love for the arts? Uh, it seems like forever. Um, I grew up in South Africa. I should start out saying that. And, uh, you know, to grow up in an environment like that, uh, it was so powerful uh, to be surrounded by uh, not only an extraordinary landscape, but wake up in the morning as a child and turn the radio on and hear Zulu songs and the entire setting of the politics as well as the the beautiful uh, landscape and these vast spaces and seeing the African world around, you know, wearing still in those days traditional Zulu clothing and beading and so on. So I think one's eyes and... Uh, you know, the sort of senses were just so intensely brought to life every day. It was very hard to not see these things. I mean, it wasn't like you were just going about ordinary business day. And let's say even songs, people sitting on a street corner, humming, singing songs, starting to build a song together around a single guitarist and so on. Or really that that the richness of that visual 
physical cultural landscape was was intense and uh, and something one I was very very conscious of. The other part was that I started as a dancer very very early, probably I think four and a half or five years old. I was a tap dancer, and um, that really became my life as a dancer. I mean, I was doing tap, I was doing classical Spanish, uh, ballet. I even studied Bharatanatyam, classical Indian dance, because I grew up in Durban, South Africa, where there's a large Indian population. So I was, you know, uh, and I think really largely came from my mother. My father also played piano. He was a doctor and my mother was a teacher. So there was just this passion for, you know, real love for being out there looking and seeing and participating. So that was very rich childhood, I would say. And the dance, of course, as I say, was really my life in totality. I mean, everything from doing pantomimes during the holidays and competitions and so on. So it was, I was, as a child, very, very busy running to dance classes every day after school and, and performing. So that was strong. And then on the art history side, I had a remarkable teacher. From 12 years old onwards, actually, through the end of high school, I don't quite even know how she, you know, she was quite, an, um, seemed like almost would not would not somebody would expect this rich language that came from her. But uh, our art history classes were really uh, looking at paintings in the caves and really way back, you know, 30,000-year-old cave paintings, uh, looking at uh, African culture, which, again, I think this is way before sort of multiculturalism became a concept that we all kind of became very tuned to in the 80s or suddenly becoming aware of very different, many different cultures. So, yes, art history was with me all the way, and I also did a fine art degree at college. So, the fine art degree, Africa, working as a dancer, all of these confluences and, and the politics of South Africa was so powerful. So somehow I couldn't separate dance, architecture, music, political science, and so on. They all were a part of a reading of the society that I was growing up in and the culture around me. So, yeah, from I would say it's been there. It's been just this real love of anything to do with art and culture and is really part of that very early childhood. So other than your art history teacher, was there a particular artist that really influenced you? You know, um, I just, as I say, I don't think there was a single artist at this moment. Let's let's again talk just going off to college. It's really much more about working as an artist. I don't even think in a sort of South African context, it's not as if I was could say I went to museums from the time I was very little or so. I went to museums, but it was the one museum in Durban was more about Africa. Again, there were African painters and drawings of, again, the cave paintings were massive sort of elephants and, you know, uh, being sort of stuffed elephants the way they used to do in old, well, I guess they still have them in the Natural History Museum and places like that. So it was really being um, making and doing, you know, being and making from visual art, you know, paintings and writing and literally going out and whenever we went for a drive, and, and that was somehow every weekend in South Africa, um, you know, I would take a notebook with me and and start drawing the landscape or people that we'd stop and talk to on the the road. So, so by the time I went to college, I don't think there it wasn't about looking. I was certainly looking at art history, but it wasn't again about a single artist until I went to London, and that's when things begin to change because I did. I, I guess to to 
continue the story of the dancer and the painter. And uh, it was really a moment in time where how do I make a choice? Because dance was such a powerful part of my life. And then I was also painting. And when I went to London to go to the Courtauld Institute, it just became more and more clear that I was being offered, had these two pathways to choose from. And so I saw the work of Oscar Schlemmer at a big Bauhaus exhibition at the Royal Academy and was then at that moment, I would say, was a huge influence because what I saw there was Oscar Schlemmer making drawings and paintings and sculpture and also uh, being a choreographer and creating extraordinary dances. So there's his very famous triadic ballet from the early 20s. And what surprised me as I moved closely into the work, and which is what drew me, drew me in, was his conversation and all his letters and uh, communication and his diaries, very detailed diaries, where he talked about, uh, he called it in a very, you know, Goethe-like poetic way. He said, I have two souls in my breast. And one he called the Apollonian, which was to him this the intellectual life, the, the drawing, what he considered the drawing, the sculpture and so on. And the other what he called Dionysian, the sort of spectacle, the theater, the sort of the sense of the, the delirious aspects of theatricality and, and dance and bringing people together and so on. So that actually became my dissertation at the Courtauld in London, which, interestingly enough, was really this personal coming together of two of my obsessions, you know, am I dancer, am I painter? And to read Schlemmer was to be have this revelation about this extraordinary artist from the past, putting all these things down for me to further think about. So... That's really the beginning of my writing about performance. I started writing right then and there. Obviously, I wrote my dissertation. I came out of the Courtauld and continued to look at that dance and visual art crossover. And so, you know, there's a buildup before I actually write the book, but I won't rush into that. Maybe there's something else you want to talk about. That, that's really the buildup. So what inspired you? When did you decide to start Performa, an arts organization dedicated to live interdisciplinary performance by visual artists? Well, okay. Again, take I'll take you slowly through a, a few more steps. So okay. at the Courtauld, um, I said, working with really quite extraordinary, wonderful art historians and, you know, where there's this very profound investigation of two-dimensional surfaces and three-dimensional surfaces and so on, and really the detective work that goes into art history, again, was always looking to that that crossover of the dance and sort of art historical conversation. And my first job out of my first, I guess, yes, my first job out of the court hall when I was still 24, I think, was to be director of the Royal College of Art Gallery in London, which we could go into a longer story how that happened. But it was really uh, something that I applied for this position. And the moment I was asked a question, talked about uh, how I wanted to bring all these different departments together. So in a way, going back to what I was talking about growing up in South Africa, that to me, I was always looking across disciplines. I was deeply an art historian in many senses, you know, really involved and, and excited by that research and looking at art history as a window into politics and philosophy and economics and just seeing it as this extraordinary uh, window into every imaginable uh, discipline that you might study. So came the interview at the Royal College. Uh, little did I know that one of the conversations at the college at that time was, how do we bring all the different departments together? 
And listeners might not know that the Royal Colleges of, of in London is a it's very well known as a graduate school for all disciplines. So it has its film department, its ceramics department, painting department, art history, and so on. So and architecture. It really is known for being a cross-disciplinary graduate school. And so coming into that interview and coming out of studying the Bauhaus and being fascinated by, again, these, these crossovers, I immediately started talking about how we could connect the different departments. So I said, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had, you know, the graphic design students design all the graphics? Wouldn't it be amazing if we had the interior design slash architecture students design the installations, what if the, I think they call it the general studies, which would have been the equivalent of their sort of art history department, write the catalogs with me. What if we use the gallery actually as a live educational tool? And that's what I believe got me the job because again, I was, did not have much experience. I had no experience as, as running a gallery or what, how you actually you know, I didn't know if you paid artists or they paid you. I really had no idea where to begin. But it was just like, okay, jump in the deep end and let's figure this out. And so immediately, and in many ways, what I was doing this is still what I was I'm doing now, which is looking at how all these different areas uh, really reflect the times that we live in at any and pick pick a time. But there's there there's this ongoing reshaping of and shaping and reshaping and constant effect of all these different moments on on art and culture with and you know I say the shifting political times as well so I was really describing my fantasy of what a 20 20th century Bauhaus curriculum would look like in the environment of the World College and that's how this gallery came to life we had performances every Tuesday night and I immediately came to New York, went to Venice Biennial, went to document and kind of educated myself in what was going on in the contemporary art world and, and went to Los Angeles and invited people. You know, here I was, this basically this kid coming out of London and saying, you know, we don't have any funds, but if, you, if you're in London, please come and give a talk. So I had Christo come and uh, Marina Bramovich came to do an exhibition there and Christian Baltonsky, and this is in the days when London was really quite insular. It wasn't looking across to Europe or much outside of London. So uh, we made quite a splash. So that's that's the beginning of this conversation about what a, a gallery can do as an educational entity and make it very exciting for the students, for all of us, to get involved with how contemporary culture and art was constantly in motion. Jump ahead a few years after visiting New York, I decided I have to live in New York. So, and then I'd seen some lofts downtown. Uh, this is, you know, in still in the 70s, late 70s, when the avant-garde art world owned downtown. Nobody went below 14th Street and certainly didn't go above unless you had to go to a doctor's office or go to a museum. <laughs> that was it. And, um, so moved to New York, found a loft, which was, you know, my dream loft on Mercer Street. And when lofts only cost $200 a month and for 2,000 square feet. And this is all part of New York history. And so oh, somewhere in the middle of this, I'd been, I had been writing about a lot of performance. Every time I visited New York, I was writing for Studio International in London. I would go back and write about what was going on in the women's movement and especially in regard to the arts in New York or writing about a big performance series that took place at the Whitney and 
75 and so on and um so this is still before the book comes into play and then when at around 77 78 i met a wonderful editor at thames and hudson a uh, much loved brilliant editor called nikos stangos and he had heard about my writing about performance and said would i consider doing a book on the history of performance and again he was one of those extraordinary editors who you basically talked the idea with him for a couple of hours and suddenly you had a book i mean i don't know if i wrote a synopsis or anything so that's the book that then came out in 1979 and uh it's called performance art from futurism to the present and the intention was really to write the history of performance into the history of 20th century art i've never separated performance art from the history of art from all these different aspects that I've been talking about, you know, to me, artists making performance and the easy ones to think about right away for anyone who studies art history in the 20th century, of course, is the futurists, you know, who wrote manifestos about getting out of your, you know, getting out of your attic studio and going into the streets and being engaged in society. Or the Dadaists who started kind of, you know, took over nightclub in, in Zurich during the First World War and really were there because of frightening war going taking place in Europe and also as conscientious objectioners. They were there as as writers, poets gathering together and created these evenings. These are all things that in, in general in art history, even studying futurist painting and sculpture, was never quite explained what all these bizarre events were about. Similarly, I think even when we're studying Dada in those days, never quite made sense what those events were about. You know, why was Sophie Teuber there? What were the dancers doing? How come Laban, Rudolf Laban, the, the famous, you know, pioneer of dance, was was actually in Zurich at the time? These interactions, the sociology, if you want, of, of the art world were not being discussed in the art history books and was actually very puzzling as to how nobody quite, you know, it wasn't being discussed as part of this art history. And so I chose to write this book that, as I say, literally made space. It's almost opened up to rewrite that art history in a way. It's a, in that way, it's a revisionist art history of the 20th century saying, you know, this these events were absolutely catalytic. You know, the way they changed uh, the direction of art or art history and how different artists coming together from many different disciplines, which in a way characterizes the moments in history, maybe more than anything else, is what changes different, you know, sensibilities, aesthetics, uh, concerns that go on in the art world. And so I went methodically through uh, the different movements, I guess, as we knew them in those days, you know, Russian constructivism, the role of the artists during Russian constructivism, the role of the artists during the revolution, how the artist was used to create visuals to communicate the new politics and the new economic policies in Russia, um, you know, after the October Revolution, and so on. So I just really methodically went through these different areas of art history that kind of almost like these stop signs, you know, okay, let's stop here, and we're going to look at surrealism and so on. And in each case, there was enormous amount of performance and gathering together and crossover of artists and designers and musicians and architects working together or working at cross purposes or in collaboration. So, you know, during the 20s, you could look at Eric Satie working with Dicabia, working with Duchamp, 
working with the ballet suedoise, working with uh, the Russian ballet. So there again, uh, I'm being a little repetitive, but that's been the sort of the constant in my my work and my world is always looking at these moments when very, very different disciplines or artists from different disciplines somehow were really in very exciting conversation. So that talks a little bit in response to the book. Uh, yes, you made the point that it's it's you know it has been in print since 1979 and it's in many languages at this point, and I've updated it pretty much every decade. So we're coming to the fourth decade. I think you said in one of our conversations, how do you explain its longevity? I have asked myself that once once or twice because, of course, there were other books from that period talking about happenings or from the 70s, let's say, um, or events or body art or different terms given to this thing called, you know, performance art is maybe the, the term that stuck. But I think sometimes I've had to think that one of the reasons it's still with us is that it does situate this work in the trajectory of art history. It's not separating. It's not saying there's this other thing called performance art and here's art on one side and painting and here's performance on the other side. I'm actually seeing it as part of a whole and that artists, again, throughout the 20th century have worked in many different disciplines. It's been a multidisciplinary century, you know, whether it's Duchamp or Picabia or Klaus Oldenburg or Robert Rauschenberg, or we can go on and on through these different decades of the 20th century when artists worked in several disciplines, sometimes simultaneously. So, you know, recent exhibitions of Sophie Teuber at, at uh, MoMA, you know, showing how she was working with some of the dancers who were all situated in Zurich at the time, some of the very avant-garde dancers like Mary Wigman or Laban and so on. And this interest in moving between dance and the body and painting and making fabrics or textile design. And again, similarly in the Bauhaus was known for bringing all different disciplines together um, and people often working together. So that also... I feel explains in some ways, and this that this history holds because I because I find it's it's very true to to what goes on in the real lives of artists. You know this relationship to many different fields at once. It's not just uh, like if you're in painting, you never do something else. You know, or you don't make music. There's just an endless crossover um, of periods when some of the richest moments in art history are when there is this extraordinary you know, collaboration of people from very different very different disciplines. That's sort of, that's the book. <laughs> Throughout the years now, right, what role does the um, audience play? You know, the audience for me is something I think about all the time. I guess I'm deeply a, maybe a teacher, I don't know if that's the right word, I feel art changes us so deeply. And if we're privileged enough to be, you know, working in that world, it's quite extraordinary to see how much one learns from looking at different art periods. And what is one learning about? You know, you're learning about humanism. You're learning, again, about a deep sense of culture and community and areas of, of politics and art and culture. Whatever you turn to, you know, there are these going to a museum and looking at art is to take you into an entirely new world of perception of, you know, different ways of understanding how we, we come to live in the worlds that we live in. So 
I see working with artists, working closely with artists, is that kind of endless excitement about um, the way ideas come through. And usually it's not didactic in the way you would think it is. I mean, it's not, I think looking at art leaves a lot of areas very open for you to interpret and put yourself inside and try to imagine what this is meaning, which, you know, it's say very different from theater or literature where it is much more explicit. Of course, there's also very adventurous uh, ways of writing and using language. But I think art invariably doesn't give you much help in climbing inside the ideas that an artist is working with. So there's this sense of of learning from not just the single artist, but rather what's in the air at this time? What's what's going on here? What are these different ways of understanding how culture changes and shifts? And again, if I think even of the last, you know, 30 years, you think of different moments in time, you know, whether it was multiculturalism of the 80s or globalism in the 90s, you know, with each shift, we learn so much. And, you know, in, again, in the old days of a, being in a European setting, studying art history, it was really limited to those parts of the world. Whereas I think in the last 20 years or so, we've really moved way beyond that. And as an art historian, even you're expected to have a knowledge of art out of Africa or art from Brazil or Japan. I mean, the whole multiculturalism and then globalism after that. So I just think in terms of how much one learns by shifting into new cultures, new geographies, again, one's learning so much through the artwork that we're looking at uh, because of this opening up of art history again to so many different cultural histories. So in terms of Performer, which is the organization I started in 2005, I'm always thinking about the audience. I want that sense of pleasure that people feel that they more that they understand something. There's real pleasure and knowledge to be gained and a sense of, you know, understanding of different human beings. What where does that take us? So so again, just I think you did we also talked a little bit about why did I start performer. And so in some ways I think there's there's an, there are three easy answers, three very specific points. One is well, if I go back to 2004, 2005, when I thought I was going to, when I decided to create a, a biennial, I really felt that this idea of performance art, as it was, as it is called, it was still not deeply understood. I mean, people would say to me things like, "Oh, is performance art still popular or something?" You know, and I'd say, "It hasn't gone away. It's it's been with us since the 1500s. You know, artists have or before artists have always made live work." Uh, and to be clear, this is not to say Leonardo da Vinci was a performance artist, but he created live events. He he wrote beautiful poetry. He sang. He designed. Um, you know, if there was a baptism or a marriage in the, the in the House of Sforza in Milan, uh, as well as being an engineer and a, uh, able to change the course of the river when necessary. He was known and presented himself to the court as this person who could sing and perform and create these extraordinary entertainments that were designed by artists at the time in the Renaissance for the princes and for the royalty. Yeah, so my point being that this history, even though I wrote the book, you know, uh, so many years before, I still felt people in general, the general public still didn't really get it. Like, what is this thing called performance? And I felt that I needed to create a a larger platform to explain it. Uh, So that's the art historical. The other was 
2004, 2000 was really, I think, was a moment when people were just going moving to Shanghai or moving to Berlin or a lot of movement away to sort of centers that seemed to be where the excitement was. And I felt, you know, we needed to really look at New York again and find a way to reinvent or just to give a lot of more energy towards communities and and also looking at artwork that was about the artists and not about the commercial aspects of art. And somehow in 2005, I mean, things have accelerated since then. It just seemed like the conversation was so much about, you know, the economics of the art world. And I felt that as an art historian, what deeply interested me was what artists had to say. So that was another reason. But all over and over was to say, look, there's this extraordinary history. So in some ways, I often say performers, history is a kind of museum without walls. We, we're endlessly looking at this history, but we're not trying to institutionalize it in such a way to put it in a static situation. So we would be this living institution that looks at this history that's always changing. So further, you know, you said, what is performance mission? So I, I would say one is to make the history well-known. The other was to commission new work. Because, again, performance art in the 70s had a very political, very uh, questioning role in cultural modes at the time. But then so were we all living through that culture. It was the Vietnam War. It was post-68. We're looking at many, many changes throughout the world in different countries um, of this idea of youth culture and the sense of economics and also, you know, going back to New York, it's a time in the 70s that New York City was bankrupt. The art market was almost, you know, was very dormant. There was conceptual art, which essentially positioned itself as being against the institution, against the art market, saying art was not about commerce, it was about the world of ideas. So, Again, looking at the 70s, it was very much saying that, you know, the, the art market was taking us too far away from the ideas of artists themselves. So the first way that I actually announced the Performer Biennial was to do a series at NYU, where I've been teaching since 87, that I called Not For Sale, which in a way said it all. You know, this is about the world of ideas of artists and the values of artists and the value systems. And this is not about the sale of of work. It's rather, again, about a, a deep concern about humanity and how we can use other means to explain or to investigate or to educate ourselves about what's happening in art. So, so those those were and and then the third part was really to commission new work, and that was very different from the history of performance, which has always been self generated or. I say a lot of the 70s was executed in protest, whether it was, you know, against, I say, a lot of different kinds of uh, concerns at the time. But my point was, you know, we could really support artists and determine to commission new work and support artists in ways that they'd never been supported before in terms of performance. Um, it had really been make your own work. And of course, there's no way of selling it at the end. So the work always had a very tentative sensibility, let's say. And for me, when I'm, if we think about the 90s and you think about the new technologies and the beautiful, beautiful installations of artists who, you know, you might think of Shirin Neshat or 
Isaac Julian or you know Julian Waring or artists who at that time were working in, in film installation, um, which again technology meets us halfway where there's this new way to use film in a in a gallery setting. And I have to say, I was looking at this work and thinking, you know, how does performance look in relation to this work? How do we get the material to have that quality of execution, that kind of support? And so that goes with this idea of commissioning, was to really support artists in making their vision, which um, visions, you know, hadn't really happened with performance before other than certain, you know, singular artists like a Robert Wilson, who early on, you know, determined that his work was going to have this visual theater of the most remarkable kind and that he would find the funds and, you know, thought on a very grand scale about how he would make that happen. But in general, performance was known for a much smaller scale and really rather difficult to get it financed. So, Performer took on this role of let's commission work and find the funds for an artist to work at a level that they just hadn't thought of before, which also, as, as we know, included inviting visual artists to create work who might never have done a performance before, but saying, you know, what if, what would happen if you made something live? Uh, wouldn't that, you know, I'd be very excited to see that. So the commission idea is really what I think shifts so much about what's possible and change i i believe it's changed perception of 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 performance in general because you could see work that was had another level of of execution i would say and even just of where it was placed and so on so yeah many different missions that that change and evolve but the first one being you know let's create new work for the 21st century and let's do it in such a way that it has this real impact, you know, on an audience and that it doesn't have to be in a totally alternative environment. You know, it can be something that a more general public can understand, even though that's not the intention. Rather, the intention is, again, if it, the work is made in a very particular way or or the flip side of that, we'll, we'll do any everything we can to provide the information, the education, the background, the clues to coming close to work so that there is more pleasure in watching something evolve. So yes, the commission, I think, has been a very important part of performers' modus operandi. So tell us, share with us, what are you excited about right now? I'm always excited about what, you know, ways to understand the culture, the cultural moment that we're living in, to find ways to capture ideas that will inspire viewers, that will excite us. But I, I think in general, another reason for me to start Performer was to commission work that I wanted to be surprised by, that I wanted to be dazzled by, that I find inspiring. I guess I'm in some ways the toughest critic. I've seen so much work over the years. So it was almost like, how do we commission new work that essentially take us, you know, take us into dream worlds of real excitement? So every day there's, uh, you know, I'm looking to see what is it that is changing? What is it that we can do or what kind of artists can we bring together to create amazing work that'll shake us in some way or something you'll know? I'm always looking for that. I'm always uh, feeling that sense of curiosity is not even a big enough word, this deep sense of 
trying to, you know, research that's about the present as much as it is about the past, of bringing history into the present, trying to understand how things came about in the past, what are we doing right now, and deeply, again, reaching people. That comes back to your point about audiences. I am very aware that when you make a biennial, it's pretty amazing to just wake up one day and say, you know, I'm going to do a biennial. And I was like, first person I told this to was my TA at NYU. And she said, uh-huh, like, oh, yeah, and how are you going to do that? But it was just sheer determination to say, you know, we have to make work again that starts with the artist, that's not, you know, that's that comes with another reason for existing that's very different. And also about the audiences. You know, I think if you're in, within the, the art world, I think you can s- show work that maybe is quite obscure, that demands a lot of work on the part of the viewer. And I I would say our work that we produce still has that quality, but I also work makes huge effort to make sure the work reads for people, that they can have access to it, even if it's the way we create our archives or the kind of educational and again, by education, I just mean like a really good introduction. Like if I'm going to meet you or meet a new person, I want a really good introduction or I can start asking questions of that person. And and the pleasure of knowledge somehow takes you closer to the ideas. So I try to speed that up as much as possible so that a large audience can get a sense of what they might take away from the work. Yes, yeah, so very concerned and... Constantly, I'm very concerned and always thinking about the audience and how we can really open them up to the extraordinary ideas that the artist is conveying. I'm going to ask you the final question. You've answered it in bits and pieces. What long-lasting impact do you want to have on people and the world in general? You know, um, I don't know if I think of anything as personally as that. I think history is larger than all of us. I think we're all part of a very uh, big world order. You know, there's this deep sense of making things possible of, and maybe in, in my sort of teaching capacity, and I mean teaching in every way, whether it's my children or somebody else's children or next generation or students, I really want people to sort of have a, a sense of revelation about what they're looking at, about what art is telling us. And I think art has a huge role to play in really sending a feeling of humanism out into the world. And so everything that I am thinking about on the teaching level or teaching young curators is really, A, this huge privilege. We live in a very privileged world to be lucky to be in this world of the art and having this cultural, these many access to so many cultural platforms. So I'm really always trying to open those things up to show students, to show younger curators, not a sense of responsibility to how we we really need to think about people, you know, reaching large groups of people and touching people and changing their their lives in some way. I, I feel it's, a, it's on one sense a very serious responsibility that we all have, and then also uh, an excitement about how, you know, again, younger curators, people. C- coming into this art world can learn how to think more like an artist, to think more about how creative they can be, uh, to have the courage to be hugely creative and with that creativity to really be thinking about how it makes us all somehow more thoughtful human beings and taking care of one another. So I see those of us who work in this art world of, of having this 
you know, real sense of responsibility of how we are always trying to change that and make things better. Thank you so much. Thank you for what you do and for sharing. Thank you, Phyllis. And thank you for, you know, for picking up on all these different areas. It's, it's really a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.